I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. I have someone here I've been wanting to talk to for so long, Iris Sokol. Did I say it right? Sokol. Sokol. <laughs> Why do I do that? I I should have asked you that before right. <laughs> I started. <laughs> Sokol, Iris Sokol, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here and great to speak with you again. <laughs> oh, I know. This has been wonderful. So I get to tell a little bit about you and kind of show you off. Is that okay? That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Iris Sokol is Senior Provocateur. Provocateur. I love that word. <laughs> I love that term. Oh, I'm and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And your learning environment specialist at Sakal Moran Partners LLC. And you just started that, right? We just began it um, in the summer. Yeah. Oh, wow. So we'll talk about that also. Now, you're co-author of Timeless Learning, How Imagination, Observation, and Zero-Based Thinking Change Schools with Pam and Chad Ratliff. And I love this this is wonderful. It, it was a sort of labor of love, a story we really wanted to share uh, as hard as it was to get a book written. Ah, this is fantastic. So let me just say a little bit more. Ira believes in technology as liberation and that everything we do with technology in our schools is designed to liberate children from the traps set by poverty, by disability, by isolation, by problems in families. And that's because we need to close every opportunity gap. I've been wanting to talk to you about this, Ira. Thank you so much. Welcome. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. It's great. Well, I always like to start out with how you kind of started your journey. Tell us a little bit about you. Well, you know, I started my journey in education um, in sort of some really problematic ways. Um, School has never been my favorite thing. And you could even talk to my graduate school professors and get um, get the same answer there. Classrooms are not my favorite place, and the structure of school, you know, never really worked for me. But I started out in a, a pretty urban setting just outside the Bronx in New York, in, in a, a city that was still fairly segregated, de facto, and is, that was actually the first city north of the Mason-Dixon line to uh, have a Supreme Court desegregation ruling. But I went to an elementary school, and um, I know many viewers will be sort of surprised by this, but it had about 1,200 students in it, um, K through 6, 5 or 6, 30 to 33 student classes at every grade. So it was a, a huge place. And... Um, but it was a place where teachers had a lot of independence and could try a lot of things. And so, though I didn't have a particularly good time in that school, I also knew that a lot of people were trying. You know, they were trying to find solutions. They were trying to do things. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of deeply appreciate that. I, I wrote a novel, it's now... 10 years ago, um, that includes parts of parts of that story. But it, it really, the, the failures that I experienced were not the fault of educators tr- not trying. They were trying to make things work. 
I was lucky enough, though, after middle school to end up in a, a brilliant high school, an alternative high school that was created by uh, some local teachers in New Rochelle, New York, and Neil Postman, who had just written Teaching is a Subversive Activity. And it was, you know, what was then called a school without walls. Um, there were really no requirements other than the fact that to get credits, we had to uh, take New York State Regents exams at the end of any required class. But other than that, whether you took a class or didn't take a class, did a project by yourself or with a group, um, just went off on your own to do things, you know, how you got the knowledge base was entirely up to you as a student. But one of the things that does is, and I learned, is it puts lots of pressure on you because as as our teachers would always say, well, if you don't want to do it that way, do it another way, but just go do it. And that forces you into a lot of uh, adult thinking and makes you really process things. What was amazing about this school, and it existed for about 18 years until, you know, the sort of conservative crackdown it, <laughs> the, um, oh, wow. was that it graduated 99% of its students. Um, and sent 95% of them to four-year colleges, way above the high school's, general high school standards. And at the same time, of course, it was made up of people who had been failing. <laughs> you know, no one was there because school was working for them. So it took this wide range of people and, you know, and, and allowed them to succeed. The other thing that it really did as I look back to a lot of people who were graduates of that program is they've had led pretty amazingly successful lives, uh, you know, across the board. They've done a lot of different things and, and been very successful at it. But one of the things when I thought about how do you recreate that environment for more students that I realized is I had certain, and we had certain built-in advantages. We were um, next to New York City. We, if we could get to the subway. We could get to everything from the Metropolitan Museum to the New York Public Library to Wall Street to the ocean. You know, um, all of that was easily available to us. When you meet students in other places, that's not true. And so all of those sort of just marvelous, incredible learning experiences that we had simply because of proximity it don't exist. What technology also allows us to do is to, um, you know, spread those opportunities out. But I, I never, when I left high school, imagined I'd go back into a school again. And I, I pursued studio art. I pursued architecture. Uh, and then I ended up as a New York City police officer. So I went. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got to stop you for a moment. <laughs> OK, you're, you're saying some things here that I just kind of want to touch on. At first, knowing that you went to a school that, with Neil, that Neil Postman created is amazing. <laughs> and is amazing. also it's an alternative school. So these are most of the kids you mentioned that were not doing, were struggling in school like you were. All right. And 99% went to college. I mean, I'm just going to pull the points out that you said because I'm, I, see, I grew up in Maryland next to Washington, D.C., 
I went to a very high-performing school, but I was not a good student. But I can tell you there was a lot there in the city (laughs) for me to learn from. And um, I think I do want to talk about the technology, but I wanted to kind of say what during that point when you decided to go in a certain direction and you said a New York City cop, I mean, sorry, policeman, (laughs) (laughs) that just blew me away. How come you went in that direction? Well, um, I had studied studio art at Michigan State, where I went for other than academic reasons. Uh, I came back to New York. A friend and I um, moved to Brooklyn. This was um, early, mid-1980s, and went to Started going to Pratt Institute studying architecture. Um, my friend is still, he's a, he's a very sort of big-time architect now. It, it's great. W- one of the things I experienced, though, was, I, you know, it, it's kind of thing I get frustrated with. New York at the time, the area of Brooklyn we were in at the time, was going through sort of perhaps the most difficult time in its, you know, history. Um, it was an incredibly violent place. It was an incredibly dangerous place. It's it's a neighborhood that in Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing. And my, fr- my friend and I can remember Spike Lee's father wandering down Myrtle Avenue. He was the model for the mayor in the movie. So it, it was a place with a lot of tension. So one of the things I did, because um, I was, Pratt had me doing jobs to help pay tuition and one of the jobs I did was to do what we called security tours for incoming freshmen. That is, we'd um, show them where they could go and where they couldn't go in the neighborhood. <laughs> and in, in doing that, I met a number of police officers from the 88th Precinct, which, is, which was the precinct for the area. And, you know, as I talked to them... I found something I guess I'd been really looking for, and this was to be to find a real way to contribute every day to society. As you know, a, a guy in his very early 20s, I was um, sort of frustrated by the inability to make an impact. Being a New York City police officer was an immediate impact job. I mean, it was. It was a time when every time a police officer appeared, people were happy to see them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's changed a lot. That's changed. But it was, right. But it was, um, and so they they convinced me to take the civil service test. Uh, I will say that the New York City Police Department was incredibly accommodating to my reading disabilities you know, they could have cared less, you know. And I've always said, if you want to be bored, listen to a law book while you're riding the subway. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was, it, uh, the police academy education was a remarkable education. I sort of got through it, um, even though, you know, shining my shoes is not really my style. But, um, and... I worked in some, you know, pretty crazy environments. I I got hurt a number of times. And um, when I was hurt, they 
handed me an early IBM PC at one point and said, see if we can use this for anything. I think they wanted me to show up for work occasionally since, you know, they were paying me. Um, And (laughs) other than just going to physical therapy. But so that was my sort of real introduction to computers. I just sort of figured it out. And uh, it was it. I realized that coding was something I could do, that the computer could help me do a lot of things that I couldn't sort of do on my own. But at the same time, you know, I got to really think about um, how we would assemble and share knowledge. I always say to people that I never fully understood algebra until I really needed to find X, which was the criminal we were looking for. And then I had to assemble an equation of from what we knew to get to what we didn't know. And suddenly algebra, sort of in the Sherlock Holmes way, made sense to me. So I frustrate math teachers by saying, I think algebra is really important. I just don't know what the numbers are doing in it. Um, <laughs> but until, until you could actually apply it. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, real, a real application. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is amazing. So how long were you there? I was there for seven years. Um, I uh, got frustrated trying to raise a child on municipal pay in New York. And um, and I, it was hard for me to conceive of doing that to work a desk job. I mean, the street was one thing, but I was never, they were never going to put me back on the street because of things that happened in my legs and, and things. So... Um, But I always, after that, although I went through a number of things before I said I'll get involved in education, um, I was always looking for something next to do that gave me that sense of what happens when you intervene at a key moment in someone's life and change that moment. Um, And that, that search eventually led me to schools. So where did you, well, you, you became a teacher. Well, I, I moved to Michigan, Western mm-hmm. Michigan. I had gone to Michigan State as an undergrad, and I, uh, without ever completing the degree, um, I had friends in Michigan, so that seemed a logical place to do. And I went back to the West Coast of Michigan, and I worked in, you know, a, um, a number of things trying to just, pay the bills for a little bit and get a set up there. Uh, and then I went to uh, Grand Valley State University um, with the intention of becoming just a regular teacher. But through the combination of the technology department where I was working and the education department and the educational psychology department, I had people who led me into the direction of what was then called assistive technology um, and uh, into, you know, special education technology, as we started to call it. And I had a wonderful boss in the technology department who said, when I said, I got to try computer stuff that will read to me, because that's always been the block at finishing the degree uh, and stuff that I can dictate to. And, and um, the ed psych professors had said, you know, there's computer stuff that reads to blind people. Uh, why can't it read to you? And of course, the problem is that the interface for the blind and the interface for dyslexia are 
have to be completely different. But in those early days, sort of in the uh, mid-1990s, my boss said, well, if this will work for you, it'll probably work for a whole lot of kids here. So he gave me a year to just research and test stuff out and come up with a plan to make the campus accessible from a computing point of view. One of the things we did there that I was really proud of is at that time, almost all the assistive and adaptive technology on campuses was hidden in either um, the disabled student's office or the um, or like a basement of the library or something. We put it everywhere. Wherever there were computers, there were accessible computers. And we had no requirements that anybody identify themselves to use it. It's just if this will work for you, go use it. That was a really powerful lesson. And so instead of um, going straight into the classroom, I started working with technology and special needs technology in the high school. Oh, I love this because I remember that time. I'm kind of the same age, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I was working with uh, assistive technology programs um, in the in the regular schools in Oakland, and they had nothing. They had nothing then, and so knowing that you were one of the, you know, um, pioneers and. and I mean, they always say I'm a digital pioneer. I guess we right. both are, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I didn't do what you did, which is take the time to really do the research and and put the technology, assistive technology everywhere. We only put it in the special ed classes. Right. And, and that became a, a sort of real driving force. And it was then that I sort of started, you know, it was then a very new phrase, universal design for learning. And to say that, People shouldn't need a diagnosis to be able to use the tools they need um, to move away from the medical model of disability that says there's something wrong with you and thus we're going to write you a prescription. But the other thing I learned very quickly as technology began to change and I was working in schools and I also worked with the Vocational Rehab Agency in Michigan is that I realized that I was starting to use multiple technologies um, throughout my day and throughout my week. So I wouldn't use the same things to read to me, obviously, if I was in my car as if I was in my home or if I was in a classroom and I needed different ways to write in a classroom versus by myself, you know, and there were so many strange things at the time that I remember, um, One company made a microphone that you were supposed to be able to dictate with in class without bothering other people. And it looked like you were putting on a jet pilot face mask. And I said, well, yeah, everybody's going to want to do this. Um, (laughs) You know, the, the driving question to me was, how do students choose tools based on, and, you know, this was became the heart of something I call tool belt theory. I said, when you choose a tool, and humans are by nature tool users, that's that's our only real evolutionary advantage on the planet compared to other animals. And when humans choose tools, they choose it based on what they have to do. And, and my example was always, you don't use the same saw when you're making a table as when you're cutting down a Christmas tree. It's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the environment you're in, you know, if you're out in the woods, you do one thing. If you're in a machine shop, you do other things. You have different choices. And 
Um, you know, as, as a friend of mine once learned, you don't use a gasoline powered concrete saw in your basement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing is what's your skill at the moment? And that involves how you're feeling, what kind of day it is. You know, sometimes you have really good days. Sometimes you don't. Disability is not, uh, disability and ability are not stable states. They come and go. And, Finally, you need to know the tools that are available. So uh, one of the big things we started pumping into the schools I worked with was lots of different choices of things on the computers of the time. So back then, we had both Pia Voice and Dragon. You know, we mm-hmm. had we had Win, I remember, W-Y-N-N, and then... Uh, um, Sometimes we had Kurzweil, but we had a variety of um, text-to-speech readers, um, a variety of browsers. And the theory became that the most important thing we can leave our kids with is to know how to use their technology to solve their own problems. And, you know, as I remember saying this in 1999, nothing... No technology we teach our kids right now will still exist in five years. So we better teach them how to learn it That's and right. how to research it. Well, the the other thing is that the whole idea is we give them the choices and then they can choose which is the most appropriate and relevant for the task of whatever they're doing. And that is, that's the tool belt theory. That's tool belt theory, that you assemble your tool belt um, and your tool belt's always going to keep changing. As you change, as the world changes, um, that's not going to be, you know, I, I was a master of via voice. That's really not useful. It's like somebody knowing about word perfect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I use that, so I know. <laughs> no, but there are so many out there that won't even know what we're talking about. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this this is great. Um that tool belt theory, you still have that idea out there. It still works today, that it's idea. Still, it still works today. And one of the things, mm-hmm. you know, we always said about the, uh, our work in Alamal County is as we went to one-to-one computing, that all of our computers had at least three ways to do anything. So oh. three, three browsers, three different word processors, um, three different text-to-speech systems. Actually, we had more than that. Um, three different speech-to-text systems. You know, we, we tried to create all these different tools so students would be able to choose. Then the other thing that, you know, became part of that, and it was this is very controversial when I describe it to people, but it worked incredibly well, was to say, if our students can't control their own computers, Someone I worked with, Vin Shivert, used to say, these are personal learning devices. If a student can't personalize them, they're not personalized learning devices. <laughs> so we um, allowed students to be the administrators of their computers, um, to download things to them, to change things, to, you know, if you found something better, load it up and tell us if it works you know, was our attitude. And this was a a hard sell, especially, well, it was hard sell to some teachers, of course, hard sell to some administrators and a very hard sell at first to some tech staff. (laughs) Because honestly, in middle school, we probably re-imaged at first 
um, 50% of the computers each year as kids just ended up with bad stuff on them. But in high school, it was down to 9%, which was lower than it was for the teachers. So kids were learning, and they were learning through the real consequence of losing all your settings and all the stuff you have on your computer because you messed it up. But, you know, I, I say to people, that requires that kids have real computers they can control with real choices, you know, so they can make real decisions about what to do because teaching decision-making it's tool belt theory writ very large. Yeah. But I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I worked with so many school districts where the IT departments, Oh, they were just locking down what they would put the images on. And the idea that you were able to do that album art is just amazing because that's a pretty large district. Yes. And one of the things we, we, you know, that I said over and over and over again to our tech department is I started calling people learning engineers. I said, you are you are all educators and you are all engineers, Um, you know, whether you're actually working on the how kids can use it side in the schools or whether you're running the network. And as people got into it, they really saw the change in kids. Um, so it was tough at first, but eventually everybody, really everybody became a fan of it because they, they saw what happened. Well, we're putting them out into the world, but we've locked down what they can do. And these tools are, I mean, wasn't it just France just banned phones in the schools? So, I mean, (laughs) these are the tools that that, that's the way they connect to their friends. That's how they connect to everything in the world now. And we need to be able to use those tools and show them how to use them appropriately. Right. And we, we can't complain about how people use technology badly. If we abdicate our role in helping them learn to do things the best way. So we would always say to parents who'd be worried about it, I'd say, you know, our goal is that if a kid is going to make the big first mistake with technology, on social media, with whatever it is, let it be with us. Where we can mediate that and teach from it. Let it not happen on their first job when they get fired. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, um, something else. So the idea that, you know, you have to teach people to function in the world, that's really our responsibility is, is so essential. And I'll, I'll say it's, you know, I tend to describe technology in these very big terms because there's nothing natural in a school building. It's all technology. So the same is true, you know, of seating. It's why we said that every child entering a classroom, whether it's kindergarten or 12th grade, should be able to decide where, how, or if to sit. Because you're going out into a world where creating the environment that you need to get things done in is half the battle. You know, Mm -hmm. people have to work in Starbucks. They have to work on the floor of airports. They have to... um, Really? Yes, I know. (laughs) You know, they, they have to... Most offices, you know, office walls are history. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. you know, they have to operate in this, in this world and they have to learn to, you know, we, teachers will say to a student, you think this is the best place to be doing what you're doing right now. And 
that's a real question that gets the kids. They'll say, oh, maybe I should go over there, or maybe I should stand up, or maybe I should lie down, or maybe I should go in the hall, you know, whatever it takes. It's, it's helping kids navigate the environment they will need to, to learn in. And so, you know, that we got to a really good place with technology and built environment. Um, you know, I think the next big challenge is time, is helping students learn to use their time. Because I'll tell you, when I've taught at the university level, and if you ask university people, kids don't drop out of college in their first year because of things they don't know. They, they fail in that first post-secondary experience because they don't know how to manage time or space or tools. And schools that lock things down are not helping kids learn any of that. Well, you said something about letting the kids choose the spaces. And I know you, in your book, you talk about, and you've also, I've heard you in other talks, talk about multi-age learning spaces. So are you encouraging, you know, kids can actually work with kids from other grade levels or maybe there aren't any grade levels? Is that You know, at Michigan State, my, I wrote my dissertation about the history of education. I always say I got there by saying after a couple of years, if, if this stuff isn't working, why do we keep doing it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and because it's a real challenge. We just keep mm-hmm. doing the same things. And the reason, the original idea that you'd separate kids by age um, comes from the Prussian military after uh, the Napoleonic Wars. And you have to think about this. The idea of this was a training regiment that would marshal kids into a future military thing. And, and their goal was absolute compliance. They said they were doing this, it was called the Prussian model, to make sure that no German officer ever, no German soldier ever disobeyed an order again. Well, we know how that turned out. And, you know, know, it's a nightmarish thing. It was was brought to the U.S. uh, by Henry Barnard in, in, in the 1850s. And his theory was that this would be a filtering system. They assumed that they wanted about 20% of kids to go to high school. And so the idea of the eight grades leading up to high school was to pretty much average getting rid of about 10% of kids a year. Um, So grade level expectations were then and are still now set above the norms that most kids can achieve because the idea was to keep filtering students out. U.S. educators fought viciously against this through the whole second half of the 19th century. They said it was ridiculous to think that every eight-year-old, it's a great letter from the state superintendent of schools in Michigan, ridiculous to think that all eight-year-olds would be doing the same thing. Educators really fought this because they knew it didn't work. They had grown up in the, you know, in the um, uh, single classroom model with everybody together. And they knew that kids learned from each other. But part of this was they didn't want kids learning from each other. They wanted a smaller success group. Um, Woodrow Wilson said it was because we need many fewer clerks than minors. 
Justice Thomas Jefferson had said that the purpose of public education was to rake a few gems from the ashes. Oh, I didn't know all that. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> you know, these, these were created. What, what I had seen in my life, my mother was a, a 1970s, you know, left-wing teacher. She and her co-teachers not, literally knocked down walls themselves um, in their school to create giant multi-age spaces without furniture, just with pillows on the floor and things like that, and to do things. Um, I had seen some great multi-age um, things in Michigan that really, really closed the opportunity and achievement gaps for in very disparate s- school areas. Pam and I then went on a trip to visit Irish schools. Um, and as we toured, we went to like 13 schools in seven days. It was insane. But all the way from giant, giant elementary schools in the Dublin suburbs to tiny places with 14 students in the farms of, of, uh, Clark County. Okay. (laughs) Um, we, what we saw was they don't divide kids up pre-K through six. And when Pam asked one of the teachers, wouldn't it be easier for teaching all seven-year-olds? She said, I don't understand. If the room was filled with seven-year-olds, how would anyone learn to be eight? (laughs) (laughs) So when we started building these multi-age elementary spaces, um, uh, sometimes with 130 or 160 students, you know, K through five, um, in big open open spaces, uh, our most recent ones actually have like giant ramps running through the middle of them. The kids learn from each other. Um, teaching becomes a very individualized thing where teachers move quietly. You never really hear them. They talk to one student, five students, you know, in little groups at little times. The kids know what they have to do each day. One of the things that amazes everyone who visits them is when the kids enter the space, whether it's morning or after lunch or anything like that, no adult has to tell them what to do or what's going on. But we've also seen when we do that, our most at-risk children, they not only succeed on, succeeded on our terms, which is learning how to be ready for life, but in the end, without any test prep, they ended up doing as well as our wealthiest kids on the state tests. Oh, that's wonderful. I visited New Zealand and saw the same thing. So it's uh, so that's why you and Pam and Chad wrote Timeless Learning? It's, we, and we call it Timeless Learning because what we wanted to say is we're not, re, we're not inventing anything new. There's a way humans have always learned. And they learn through play. They learn by imitating each other, what we call aspirational peers, you know, the person who can do just what you can. Um, they learn through storytelling. Um, they, they learn by, with movement, you know, is, is a huge thing. And they, they learn by real experiences. You know, the other thing we've done in these big learning spaces is put kitchens in the middle of them. We're trying to recreate you know, the home environment that we want that allows kids to experiment and sort of live life in a real way. And, you know, we try to carry that up all the way through high school in in various ways. Secondary education is always tougher to change. But, you know, by creating 
lots of choices, lots of options. You know, our high school principals say, you know, they want to make sure kids can wander out into the halls when they need to and work separately. You know, as one principal once said to me, if they're comfortable in the building, it means they're not leaving the building. And if they're, so if they're in the building, he said, and I run across them, I can decide, is it important for them to go back to class or not? Or I can help them decide to do that. It's, and people have said, well, these high schools look like college campuses. Well, that's our goal. We're trying to create the, the environment that helps you move to the next level instead of trying to cram the content in that gets you to the next teacher. Well, you know, um, I, I have a little knowledge around personalized learning. You seem to be, this is what it's all about. It's you're providing the environment so they can become the best they can be and the support and resources there from when they need them. Exactly. You know, one of the things I've said over and over again is kids at risk, kids from poverty, kids from isolated communities, whatever it is, they don't come to school knowing less. They know different. And schools traditionally have not leveraged those differences. Um, I was talking to educators from uh, Northwestern Iowa uh, a couple of months ago and You know, so I said to them, do you have kids who are stars in 4-H and, you know, future farmers, but are failing in school? And they said, oh, of course. I said, well, how's that possible? If a kid can raise this enormous bull and give you every statistic about it, list its whole growth patterns, the whole thing, how are they failing sixth grade math? You know, (laughs) it's it's not the kid's fault. It's that we've moved away from any relevance to them. The same is true for, you know, kids from urban poverty things. Um, I remember a friend in New York who said that the uh, New York State standardized test for like sixth grade asked kids um, about ham radios. Well, these kids in the Bronx were trying to figure out how you turned ham into a radio. <laughs> There's none of it, you know, those no, no connection to anything they would have ever known. And I think, you know, one of the things I always said, because I worked with a lot of kids with reading problems, but this is true of every kind of learning. Why would you learn to read, which can be very difficult, if you have no interest in what's in the book? That's right. You know, that's right. Why would you learn a math thing if there's you can't figure out any application of it? Right. I mean, yeah, it's relevance. It's all about relevance. relevance. Yeah. So that's that's been our goal. And and as we as we go out and work with um, other school systems, um, we, we think we can help them take the first steps and get themselves moving in the direction I think educators really want to go to. Well, I I see the need, and I read your book. Um, I I'm going. I definitely want to make sure people read it. So I'm putting your book up, putting pictures up, putting resources. You have amazing uh, references and and resources there from what you're doing. And I don't know if people know what it looks like. And so you even have some pictures of what that looks like with the kids in the hall and kids all over. I mean, so I think we need to put those on the blog post we put together. 
And one of one of the pictures I sent you is actually a video, which is like a 38-second video of one of the multi-age spaces. And what I always encourage people to do is to listen to it. It's okay. this it, people will say it's noisy, but it's joyous. It's like uh, messy learning, but it's at that's at its best. <laughs> that's right. As I always say to people who complain that their kids spend too much time looking at their screens. I say, you know, if you give them a mud puddle, they'll stop looking at the screens. Um, <laughs> um, it's yeah. if you let kids choose authentic experiences, they'll choose a lot of things, you know, That's and they'll right. go through. Kids are explorers, and I, I, we just want to let them do that. Well, I'm just gonna we're gonna have to pull everything together because of time, but I just thought about, I mean, saw this on Twitter just recently about, do you remember all the mud puddles and do you remember the time and the fireflies that you put in a jar and all these things that our kids aren't doing now? And we need That's, to let go. We need to let them have that fun again. We, we need to let go. People will look at some of the pictures. You know, we had middle school kids build um, uh, tree houses in one of their cafeterias and they'll see these kids climbing all over with power tools, but nobody gets hurt. I always say that, you know, kids follow all the rules that make sense to them. So if you tell them not to chew gum, they think you're, you're an idiot because why, why does that matter? But if you tell them don't cut your hand off, they're pretty responsive to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm going to end it on that. Right. <laughs> We don't want them cutting their hands off. Right. <laughs> oh, all right. This is, uh, I could talk to you for hours. This has been amazing. I, well, I cannot you. wait to share this with the world and uh, share your story. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning podcast and my conversation with Ira Sokol. Look for complimentary blog posts about Ira where we pull together resources, links, pictures, and even a slideshow for you. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and we'd love a review. You can also subscribe to my website at barbarabray.net to receive announcements, updates, and more, so you don't miss any of the conversations.